today's scripture reading is Hebrews 13.4. Again, Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. I gotta say, it's an exciting time for us right now. Some of us may be a scary time. Uh, for the meeting that took place uh, last Sunday, I think uh, I think it went well. I think everyone is. Uh, I, I just want to say I appreciate everyone's love and and the unity that we share, and I appreciate everyone's faith in regards to uh, this new decision, this new uh, opportunity that is now before us when it comes to relocation. And I want to remind you that there are there's a box in the back uh, that if you have a comment, if you have a question, if you have a concern, if you're really ha- excited about it and you want to write it down, whatever it is, go ahead and do that and place it in the box back there. We'd love to hear from you. I know the elders uh, are going through those and uh, we'll, they want to answer whatever question you may have. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, the communication continues to, uh, to flow, uh, in, in, in other words. So I just wanted to remind you of that. And tonight, we're going to actually uh, meet back here at the building and have a prayer meeting. And the, the hope is that all of us can then again be getting on the same page, praying to God for guidance uh, in, in all of this. And I will ask if, that if any men are able and willing to help out in leading that service, please come grab me after services, okay? So uh, please come to me. I might not be able to grab you, but I, I need as much help as I can get. So please come to me if you're able to help with regards to that service. Okay, a lot of you know that I like history. I'm sure it's been pretty evident in a lot of my sermons. Best to make sure I don't lean too heavily on history, right, in all of my sermons, because I know that's not a passion for everyone. But I do enjoy it, especially American history. Uh, For instance, I like to look back at the founding of our nation, and I like to ask myself, what would I do in their place? What would I do when facing the monumental task of building a society? What would I have done differently? Would I have done anything differently? And what would I have done differently? In fact, let me ask those questions to you hypothetically. If you were to build a society... What would, build, what would be your building blocks? What would you use to form this society? Keep that question in mind. We've been, in the last few weeks, going through the Ten Commandments in a sermon series. And as we've been going through the Decalogue, as we've been uh, going through these ten statements, as they're often called, I, I've been learning a lot. I hope you guys have been learning a lot. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've really realized in our recent study of these commandments is that these commandments were not simply religious laws passed down to a religious group of people. They were ordinances. They were commandments that were governmentally mandated. In other words, these were commandments, these were laws, not just in a religious sense, but in a governmental sense. We live under a separation between church and state. And I think a lot of times in our mind, we can separate in our minds the difference between the Ten Commandments and maybe 
laws of the land. But for the Jews, it was one and the same. For the Israelites, they lived in a nation that was a godly nation, that was God's people. It was certainly a religion, but it was also a nation. And they had borders that they, had, that they wanted to protect or that they needed to protect. And they had laws of the land. And so when God gives these Ten Commandments, He is building a society. And when we think of it, think of it like building a bridge. If you're going to build a bridge and it's going to span a wide gap, it needs to have a strong foundation. And the same is true with any structure, right? In a skyscraper or any house, you need to have a firm foundation if it's going to last, if it's going to stand strong. And the same is true with a nation. And God, what He's doing in the Ten Commandments and what He does when He really... He's, gives the, uh, the law of Moses, when he gives that Levitical law, what he's doing is he's building the foundation for a society moving forward. And I think when we look at the Ten Commandments in this way, we learn just what's important to a society. If a society, if a society is going to last, for example, if a society is going to be successful, then it has to put God first. And we see that in the first four of the Ten Commandments, right? Have no other gods before me, which really starts all the Ten Commandments. It's where all the other commandments come from. They all start there. And then he says, you shall not have any idols. You shall not bear my name in vain. And you shall also keep the Sabbath day. And all of these four commandments are designed in order to keep God first and center, front and center in the life of the Israelites. We also see from the Ten Commandments that that though, that that though that is obviously important, that is not the only thing that a society needs to function. You can't just love God, you must also love other people. And loving God really leads to loving other people. And we see that there are certain uh, more, again, building blocks in a society. For instance, property is important. A society cannot function if people are unable to hold and to keep their property, which is why God says, you shall not steal. In the commandment, you shall not bear false witness, we see just how important truth is to a society. And also, I talked about last week, you shall not murder. And I went over uh, in great detail just how important the value of life is in the success of a society. So what we see is that God is building a, these building blocks. He's, he's Really, he's building safeguards to what he finds most important to the success of a society. And I have to say, I don't think that we're doing that great a job in any of these, especially the right to life, as I talked about last week. And I mean uh, we, I mean the nation of the United States. But we also see from the Ten Commandments, there are two commandments that show us just how important one more foundation, one more building block is. And that building block is the family. God says, honor your father and mother. And he says, you shall not commit adultery. And I believe those commandments are put in there because they are a safeguard for what God views as the main building block of society. I asked you, if you were to build a society, what would be your building blocks? God chose his building block to be the family. Think about it. 
you go back to the patriarchal age, how did God pass the laws onto their onto the His people? How did God uh, pass the faith along? He did it through families, really through the father, through the mother, through the children, and it passed down from generation to generation. And then when one of those families became a nation, when Abraham's family became the Israelites, that structure didn't really change all that much. Sure, now there are governmental laws. Now there are priests. Now there are eventually kings and prophets. But we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that the primary mechanism by which God passes along the faith is still the family. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And of course, there's a very famous passage. In fact, go ahead and say the first part out with me out loud, okay? We're going to go all the way down to your might, okay? Read it with me, please. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on, your door, on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We see in this passage... It's up to every father, it's up to every mother to pass the love of God on to their children. Now, what we just did, I think, is a very important thing. Reading the Scripture aloud together and learning from the Scripture together as one big family. But we see that this, the true structure, the true mechanism, the, the way in which God passes along faith is primarily through the family. And that principle goes even to today. In the church, which is, of course, God's kingdom on this earth, we have preachers, we have elders, we have deacons. But the primary method in which faith is passed along is, again, through the family. These verses say it's not enough to read, the, to read that statement, to read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's not enough to say that here on Sunday morning. You need to be saying it to your children. When you get up, when you go to sleep, when you're at the dinner table, whenever you are with them. This needs to be constantly on our lips. You know, I know a lot of uh, youth ministers. They, uh, I talk to them all the time. And one of the uh, primary complaints that is often brought up is that so many parents would rather the youth minister or would rather the minister be in charge of their kids' faith or of passing on faith to their children. And so what happens is they come to the church building and they, they give their kid off to the youth minister for about an hour and they say, okay, that's enough for the week. They've, they've gotten what they need. So now we can move on to more pressing concerns like getting them through school. That's just not how it works. God chose the family to be the primary way in which faith and love of God is passed down. And that's why he says, honor your father and mother. And that's also why he says, you shall not commit adultery. Because adultery... It's a sin 
against family. Now, I'm going to hopefully prove three things as we talk about adultery. Number one, it is a sin against family, but it's not just a sin against family. It's a sin against God. And number three, it's also a sin against society itself. Let's talk about the first one. Adultery destroys families. It is a betrayal. It is an event that leaves behind scars which never fully heal. It turns children against parents, and in, in many cases it turns parents even against children. It is the breaking up of that which is sacred, a family and a marriage. It is the breaking of a contract. And in, simply put, it's the breaking of a covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement in which both sides have obligations. And as we've been going through the book of Exodus, I hope that you've been growing in your understanding of the covenant that God has between himself and his people. And throughout the Bible, that covenant is compared to marriage. I think that's an important thing for us to remember. This covenant between God and his people is compared to a marriage covenant. Now what that does, and listen to me, what that does is that elevates the importance of marriage itself. The very fact that marriage is representative of God's relationship to us elevates just how important marriage is. Now, under the Old Covenant, we see this continually take place as just a motif that that runs throughout all of the Old Testament, especially here in the Ten Commandments. In fact, I was fascinated to discover that the Ten Commandments are written very similarly to what is called a Jewish ketubah. A Jewish ketubah is basically a Jewish marriage contract where the rights and the responsibilities of the wife and the husband are laid out in this contract that both of them sign before they actually go through with the wedding ceremony. Now, how do I mean when I, what do I mean when I say it's similar? Well, in a Jewish ketubah, oftentimes they'd be written out so that the very beginning of them, you write a description of how the couple met. So if Carissa and I were Jewish and we had a ketubah, it would say something like, we met in college. And, and that's how we met. And then we would go on down the list to describe the things I'm supposed to do and the things she's supposed to do. That's very similar to how the Ten Commandments start. God starts off in this ketubah, you could say, by saying to the people, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I, this is how we met. I saved you. And then he goes on into the Ten Commandments where he lists off the terms of the contract. And so now we transition into understanding that not only is adultery a sin against family, it's a sin against God. Because when you break the covenant between you and your spouse, you're also breaking the covenant you have between you and God. The people of God ratified this covenant In Exodus 24, verse 3, where it says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, what do you say in a marriage ceremony when you and your wife or your husband, what do you say when the two, when after the 
the officiant has given, the, has spoken the vows? You say, I do, right? That's what they're saying. Only they're saying we will do. Let me go on a rant for a second. Okay? Entering into the rant. Okay, so when I perform wedding ceremonies, and I've only done one, so that one time I performed a wedding ceremony, <laughs> I felt it was important to kind of break away from some of the traditional sayings, not, not to be different, but because I felt it was important. Now, I said, I do. Chris and I said, I do at our wedding, and most people say, I do. But I think it's much more proper to say, I will. Because I do says, yeah, I'm committing now. I agree to marry you now. I will says, no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, I'm committing now to always be committed. And that's what, they say to, that's what they say to God here. They say, we will do. We will. And again, the same thing is true, and I think, in a marriage. You can't enter into a marriage saying, yeah, I agree now. Maybe down the road I'll change my mind. No, you have to enter into the marriage from day one saying, no matter what comes, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much I dislike this person in the future, I will be committed to them. So, rant complete. I'll come back over here. What's my point? My point is that in, in, all of, in all of our lives, the most important covenant that we are a part of, the most important marriage that we are a part of, is our marriage with God. And even if you're single, and you don't even want to get married, you still need to be married to God. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, it's, uh, Paul calls, and we talked about this last year in the book of Ephesians, but ca- Paul calls the uh, marriage a grand illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. Where the husband represents Christ and the church represents, or the, the bride represents the church. And our relationship in a marriage is a symbol, a sign to the rest of the world. Now, what does that mean? As I said before, it elevates the importance of marriage. And it means that if you break up that marriage, if you destroy that marriage, you are not only profaning your spouse and your family, you're profaning the name of God. Because your marriage is not just between you and your spouse. Your marriage is a sign, a sign to the rest of the world. And when you destroy a marriage, when you cheat on your spouse, you're not only cheating on your spouse, you're cheating on God. Because you're destroying the covenant you have with Him. Do you see how big of a deal this is? I want us to understand just how seriously God takes adultery. Under the Old Covenant, do you know what the punishment was for adultery? Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's from the Old Covenant. Punishment of adultery was death. Now, the New Covenant, there is, uh, the, the capital punishment went away. I think we're all a little excited about that. right? We're all probably happy that the capital punishment gets kind of pushed back. But in the New Covenant, it's still severe. Severe enough that Jesus in Matthew 19 uses it as the only exception clause when it comes to divorce. So he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. 
So that word immorality, it's the word sexual immorality. Uh, your version might say fornication. Really, it's the Greek word porneia, which is where we get the word pornographic from. Now, the word, it means a physical, a sexual physical encounter with someone that is outside the bounds of, of what God intended. And in this case, in, in this context, is talking about the physical act of adultery. At least as far as I understand it, when I, when I say this, that's what it seems to me that this verse is talking about. And so what does that mean? It means that adultery is severe enough that Jesus says, after such a thing happens, divorce would then be, let's say, permitted. Now, I want us to make an important note here. When I say that divorce would be permitted, I'm not saying it would be required. Because there are many marriages who have who felt like their family was destroyed by a moment, but they were able to rebuild, they were able to rekindle their marriage, and eventually grew to trust one another again. And it takes a lot of grace, and it takes a lot of time. But I think it's important for us to note that just as marriage should not be rushed into, divorce should not be rushed into either. Because these are decisions that affect the rest of our lives. But they don't just affect the rest of our lives, they also affect our eternity. And really, this is what we need to... This is what it all comes down to, right? Because our eternity is what matters most. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he goes through a list of all the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And guess who's on the list? He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, that you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I think we all understand pretty basically how Adultery is a sin against your spouse and a sin against the family. We need to also understand it's a sin against God. But we, thirdly, need to realize, in a grand sense, that adultery is harmful to society itself. It's harmful to the community around us. And really, it all goes back to what I talked about in the beginning, which is the founding foundation, the building block of society being the family. If you destroy families, let me put it this way, it's like building a house on a faulty foundation. A society built upon broken families is not going to be successful, it's not going to last. I think the best way for us to understand this would be to zoom out and look at all sexual immorality for a second. So let's talk about all sexual immorality for just a second. And I think, uh, I think I'll be able to prove it better this way. Now, it's usually at this point in the discussion that someone who's heart of heart would say something like this. Get God out of my bedroom. You're saying that God wants to be a part of my private life? You betcha he does. And it's not that I want to be a part of your private life. It's that God demands to be in every part of your life. He demands to be the center of your life. And he demands even to be the center of your heart. 
Which is why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes the point very clear that sexual immorality is not limited to just the physical acts. In Matthew chapter 5, which we brought up last week, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes, he quotes, you shall not murder, and he also quotes, you shall not commit adultery. And when, he, when he's talking about these commandments, he is, as I said last week, he is not changing the meaning of the commandments, but he is pointing out that the Pharisees were applying these commandments and then neglecting the rest of the law. In other words, the Pharisees thought, hey, I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. Therefore, I'm, I'm good. And Jesus says, now wait just a minute. You hate your brother. And the Torah says you need to love your brother. You're not fulfilling the law of God. And he also says the same thing with regards to adultery. He says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying there's such a thing as spiritual adultery. An adultery of the heart. Do you see how strict God is when it comes to sex? Not only say you need to keep the marriage bed pure, you need to keep your mind pure. Because really, what leads to the physical act of adultery? It all starts in the heart. The heart recruits the hands. It may start in the heart, but it becomes very physical very quickly. And so we see that God demands purity in all of these forms, which is why in 1 Corinthians 6, which was read to us at the very beginning of the sermon, actually the very beginning of the service, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Run from it. Because it has the potential to destroy your life and your family. And your soul, for that matter. It matter. And most importantly, it has the potential to put you in hell. Our society is suffering from the consequences of sexual immorality. I don't have the time nor the knowledge to go over every way, every negative consequence that we are suffering through. But let me give you a few examples. Our society, we live in a post-sexual revolution America. Our culture celebrates the viewpoint that, that everyone should be sexually active in whatever way, shape, or form that they want. And that if, if we were to only unburden ourselves of the guilt or the shame that comes from this, then we would be happy and free. Well, this is just simply not true. What happens, and, and you can look at our society and you can see this very clearly, what happens is we become slaves. Become slaves to addiction. Let me give you some sad statistics for a moment. The largest pornographic website on the internet in 2016 tracked how many people visited their site or how many visits that they, that they had in that one year. And the number was 23 billion. And just to keep, keep that in perspective, there are about 7.5 billion people on the planet. 23 billion visits in one year. We have people who are addicted, who are slaves to their own bodies. And these addictions are as powerful as the physical addiction to alcohol, 
as the physical addiction to drugs. It is a, it's, a, it's a real slavery that's taking place. And, and peop, more and more people, the number is only on the rise, more and more people are addicted to this, uh, to, to pornography or to lust in general. More and more people are becoming addicted at younger ages. Listen to me for a second. Our society has gone to great lengths to keep cigarettes out of the hands of kids. You know, we have ads, we have you know, promotional messages or public service announcements. We have people, groups who go to schools and teach on this. It's even against the law. Meanwhile, we're giving our children access to all the filth in the world in the form of their devices, their phones, computers, tablets, whatever. And our society is suffering for it. Because children are losing their innocence earlier and earlier. And becoming addicted earlier and earlier and earlier. That's not, just that. That's not the only way in which our society has completely failed in this regard. We also see one of the, main, one of the big consequences that is so prevalent in our culture... Have you ever noticed or have you ever felt like sexual assault is on the rise? And maybe, in, maybe it's in, only in certain places, sure, but what do you expect when you tell society to just follow your own urges like an animal? What do you expect is going to happen? People are going to start acting like animals. But let's talk about some of the more obvious consequences that our society is suffering from. Obviously, there's, stuff, there's disease, STDs, things like that. But the biggest one is pregnancy out of wedlock. Which, in many cases, leads to abortion. We talked about that last week. But it's important to note again that most abortions, let me rephrase, most murders take place because two people wanted to have sex but didn't want to be parents. And our society says, that's fine, that's okay. Just do what you want. That's the morality of the day. It's hedonism all over again. We're saying, live the way you want and don't worry about the consequences. And, and so, thus, children are murdered. But in the cases where the child isn't murdered, you now have a child that's growing up in a single-parent home a lot of the time. Now, you know I say this with love. You know I came from a single-parent home. But the number one indicator the number one indicator that a child is going to grow up and commit crime, the number one indicator that a child is going to drop out of high school, the number one indicator that a child is going to grow up to be permanently poor, and it's not even close, the number one indicator is whether or not that child is growing up in a single-parent home. Because God designed the family to be a certain way, didn't He? Children need a mother and a father. Now, that's not to say that if your situation in life puts you in, in a bad spot, that you're a, a automatically a bad parent. Obviously not. I think my mom was a great mom. But that doesn't mean we should celebrate single parenthood. And we should also not blind ourselves to the problem that this is creating. I think the number was one out of every four now. One out of every four kids is growing up. In, this, in a single parent home. Now what happens 
when you break the family foundation that God so strenuously put together? What happens to a society when that happens? Well, I think a good case study would be the Roman Empire. In 1947, a historian by the name of Robert Toynbee, he documented the rise and fall of 23 different grand civilizations. And he was especially taking note of what led to the downfall of these nations that are no longer here. And one of the main problems, or one of the main things that leads to a civilization dying is the destruction of of family, and more specifically, the destruction of marriage itself. In fact, he coined the phrase, he said, civilizations do not die by, or they die by suicide, not by murder. They crumble from within. And when you look at the Roman Empire, you can see this, how it took place. The family, or really the marriage, the institution of marriage became more of a formality than anything else. People were living in hedonistic sexual ways. Uh, Immorality was running rampant. And thus, the benefits of family, the benefits of marriage, started to disappear. Meaning family disillusion increased, the fracturing of the cornerstone of society, uh, crime exploded, productivity and creativity diminished, cynicism and apathy ensued, and the empire began to crumble. You don't get anything else from this sermon. Get one point, and that is that God knows what he's doing. God knows what's good for us. And he knows the society cannot succeed if it's not built on the strong foundation of family. So what I've done this morning so far is painted a pretty sad picture. I've diagnosed the problem, but now let's talk about solutions for a moment. One thing I wish I'd made more clear last week, I went on and on about murder, and how murder is prevalent in our society, and I really, I kind of neglected to mention that God is in the forgiveness of, uh, God is in the business of forgiving murder. Forgave Saul, forgave David. God is in the, is in the business of forgiving murder, and he's also in the business of forgiving adulterers. If you cheated on your spouse. Even if your spouse can't bring themselves to forgive you, God is waiting with open arms. And therefore, there is hope for all of us. No matter how we've blown it in the sexual realm, and believe me, I think that's most of us have blown it in some way, shape, or form because we live in a society that is teaching us everything wrong about sex. It's hard not to kind of go with the flow sometimes. But that doesn't mean we're hopeless. We still have hope moving forward. But it takes repentance and it takes putting safeguards in place to make sure that our family is protected. First of all, let me just remind you of uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 again, where Paul goes down the list. He lists off all the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God and he says, such were some of you. So there is hope. But how do we protect our families now? What safeguards should we put in place? I'm going to list off several practical just uh, examples, uh, practical bits of advice. And these are not original to me. I kind of found them from sources all over the place. And I kind of compiled them together, the ones that I thought were extremely useful. 
And hopefully uh, you'll look into this more and you'll find more examples. But the, the key principle here is that we need to take this extremely seriously and we need to be protecting our families with as much strength and gusto as we can. So let me just give you a few ways in which we can, let's say, prevent future adultery. Number one, we must refrain from committing emotional adultery. This is when a person becomes close to a spouse, uh, someone of the opposite sex who is not their spouse. Maybe they come, they, they and, it, and it's this one that I think people are so quick to justify, right? They say, well, I, my relationship with him isn't physical. I just can talk to him about things I can't talk to my husband about. Or she gets me like my wife just doesn't. And there's no physical component to it. Therefore, it's okay. No. <laughs> no, it's not. In Song of Solomon 5.16, the woman says of her husband, this is my beloved, this is my friend. Guess who is supposed to be your closest confidant when you're married? Let me hear it. Your spouse. Who's supposed to be your best friend when you're married? Your spouse. And I don't want us to get fooled into thinking that emotional adultery is fine and good as long as it doesn't get physical. Because you're still betraying your spouse. You're just still uh, destroying the intimacy that, is, that you have between the two of you and you're including someone else into that same intimacy. But also it oftentimes leads to physical adultery. So we can't fool ourselves into thinking that this is okay. Secondly, and this one's obvious, but it needs to be said, we must refrain from committing spiritual adultery. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look at a young woman lustfully. Oh, we all need to make that same covenant. At least all, all men and women the same the other way around. Both ways, anyway. Anyway, my point is this. Jesus said it starts in the heart. If you are looking at other people lustfully, if you are training your brain to think that way, then you're only training yourself to commit the physical act one day. These things lead to the actual act that will destroy your family. And if that wasn't enough, these things on their own can condemn you to hell. So we must train our minds. We must train our hearts. Now, with regards to both of these points, I think the third point uh, can apply to both of them, and that is that we need to hold ourselves to strict standards. I heard it said this way. I heard it called... It was called uh, personal... Let me make sure I get this right. Personal legalism. Personal legalism. I kind of like that. Now, legalism is the idea that you are holding other people to stricter standards than what the Bible teaches, right? And that's wrong. You're building a hedge around the law and you're saying, hey, you're not doing what I said is true and that is wrong. You can't impose that on other people. However, the idea of personal legalism is when you don't hold that same standard to other people, but you yourself hold, your, you hold yourself to a stricter standard. Perhaps even than what the Bible says. And the idea is that you don't want to go anywhere near the line. 
you, if the line's here, you go completely the opposite direction. I think this is kind of what Jesus was talking about when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. This is better to go into heaven with one eye than to burn with both eyes in hell. The idea is that we want to hold ourselves to stricter standards because we know we're weak. We know we're flesh. And we know that if we dance on the line, eventually we're going to fall over. Our society says, play with the line, test, try. It says, you know, there's no harm in doing any... It really says there's no responsibility no, uh, and no consequences to any action. But one of the main things that our society promotes is that you should, you should dance right up to the line. That's not the Christian perspective. And I'm so sad... I'm so saddened by so many people I've talked to who that, it seems that that mindset has infiltrated the way they think. Where they think, well, there's nothing technically wrong, so I'm going to go right up to the line. And, I, and, and then I see them fall. Just as I may have predicted, just as anybody may have predicted, they then fall over the line. Because I think you really have to evaluate your mindset if you're trying to think of what you can get away with. That's not the proper Christian mindset. So, what does this look like practically? Well, it means you might come across awkward or weird to society. Wait, you mean you don't have cable? Or you, don't mean, you mean you don't, have, you don't uh, watch this show? You don't watch that show? Oh, you mean... Here's a rule I try to hold to, although it gets, it's hard to do, but it's definitely something I don't let become a habit. And that is, I don't like to be alone with a woman who's not my wife or relative. That's just a rule, right? Some people call it weird. I call it insurance. I think it's a good rule for everyone to have that you, you just don't make it a habit to be alone with someone of the opposite sex. There are plenty of rules you could go over. I'm not going to go over an exhaustive list, but the idea here is the principle behind it. And that is that instead of trying to figure out what we can get away with, we should be doing everything we can to to run away from the line. Remember the verse said, flee sexual immorality. I don't think that meant step up to the line and wonder how far you can go. Next point. This is for single people. Sleeping around is an internship for adultery. Now, not only is sleeping around fornication, which is a sin, meaning it can condemn you to hell, or it will, without the saving blood of Christ. So that's, that should be enough, right? But I also want you to know that one of the more prevalent lies in our society, the lie that we should sow our wild oats while we're young and then once we get married then we'll be faithful that's just lunacy what you're doing is you're becoming addicted to variety in sex and the same thing is true if you're going online watching porn because no matter how great your future spouse is they can't compare to all of the images you've burned in your mind So you're only setting yourself up for disappointment. You're only setting yourself up for 
like I said, it's an internship for adultery. Finally, I'll say this. Confess before you get caught. This is a hard one, I know. But let me give you one more lie that our culture propagates that is just a lie. Telling them would only hurt them. You've already hurt them. You've already hurt your marriage if if you're cheating on your spouse. You've already hurt your marriage. You've already destroyed the intimacy. And the more you hide, the more you close yourself off from them. No. You're only protecting yourself when you don't confess. Secrets destroy marriages too. It may take a little while longer. But they do. Now let me say this: when it, I know that I know this isn't the type of sermon that a bunch of people are going to come forward after. Okay, uh, because even if it's for something else, you might feel a little uh, feel a little awkward. But I will say this: I want, I hope that every couple will talk to each other after this sermon. Now maybe you've been squeaky clean, and that's great. You still need to talk about it and make sure you're putting the safeguards in place. Maybe you put those safeguards in place years ago and you need to dust them off and make sure they're still strong and secure. But you need to be communicating with your spouse about this. Or maybe you have been doing wrong and you need to confess. It's going to be hard. I won't lie to you. But... I hope you view your marriage as worth the fight. As worth the effort and the agony. The lesson is yours. If there's anyone here this morning who, uh, who needs help with, with anything, maybe you need prayers from the congregation, we're willing and able to do that for you. If you're here this morning and you haven't become married to Christ. We can hold that marriage ceremony right now. Whatever you need is. Don't hesitate to come. Now or after services if you need. Whenever it is, please come. As together we stand and sing.